Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 through 17 this morning. Uh, if you don't know, we've been uh, working through 1 Peter for a few weeks now, and uh, we're going to keep working through it uh, in the weeks to come. So 1 Peter this week, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your grace. Uh, we thank you for your mercy. Uh, we thank you that uh, you uh, draw us to yourself uh, by your spirit, through your word, uh, through the proclamation of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that you would draw us near to yourself now, that uh, you would open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us in the scriptures, uh, that you would give me the words to say and give us all ears to hear. Uh, we pray that you would pour out your spirit to those ends. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I have pretty much always felt like an outsider. I guess it started when we moved in the middle of kindergarten, and uh, I never quite fit in with the kids in my class until we moved from there after the fourth grade, and I had a new group of kids to not fit into. My friends uh, were the outcasts, and I always felt like an outcast among outcasts. And maybe because of that, I always felt pretty keenly the pressure to conform. I wanted to be on the inside, but I could never quite figure out the formula. Peer pressure, of course, doesn't go away when you get older. I wish I could say that it did. It, it might get subtler, but it doesn't go away. Every culture, every society is constantly seeking to influence us for good or for ill, from the culture of America, to the culture of your boardroom, to the culture of your church, your university, or your neighborhood, every culture wants you to conform. And the temptation is to, to go along so as not to stick out or be different or feel like an outsider. But what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that we are to be different. And we're to be different by doing good for God's sake. 
Now, I had this great outline for these seven verses. It was really amazing. You would have been impressed with it, but, um, but we're not going to go through it. <laughs> uh, because I realized we would never get through all of that. And um, so we're actually going to focus this week just on verses 11 and 12 and a little bit of 15. And we'll, we'll come back next week, don't worry, to the rest of the verses. Uh, we'll look at the remainder of the passage then. So our outline for this week is uh, found in your bulletin. The source of our doing good, the first steps of our doing good, the context of our doing good, and the goal of our doing good. The source, the first steps, the context, and the goal. So we, we are called to be different by doing good for God's sake. But what does that mean and what does that look like? Uh, so first, the source of our doing good. Uh, verse 11 starts out, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And before Peter exhorts us to do anything, he gives us a reminder. And we talked about this last week a little bit, but what you do in the Christian life must flow out of who you are. And the more you understand and internalize who you are, the more what you do will naturally flow from that. And so Peter doesn't begin his exhortation in verse 12, where he says, keep your conduct honorable. And he doesn't even begin it in the middle of verse 11, where he says, abstain from the passions of your flesh. He begins with a reminder. He begins actually with the word beloved. Uh, Now, this is probably simply an expression of Peter's affection for his readers. This is one of the main titles, actually, that the New Testament writers use for the people to whom they write. It shows us the love within the church and the care that the apostles had for the people entrusted to them by God. But Peter's affection for them is a reflection of God's affection for them. The book of Romans begins to all those in Rome who are beloved by God. And Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Really knowing that you are loved, loved by God, is the first step to knowing who you are, which is really the first step to doing good. Notice this works actually the opposite of peer pressure. Uh, Peer pressure says, conform and we will love you. God says, I love you, now be transformed. That reversal is anything but insignificant. But what Peter wants to remind them here is not simply of their identity as beloved, but of their identity as sojourners and exiles. This is clearly important to Peter because he began his letter that way. Remember uh, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter addressed his letter to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And here he uses uh, exiles, but not just exiles. He he calls them sojourners and exiles. Uh, That uh, pair of words, one commentator tells us that those two Greek words occur together in apparently in all of Greek literature in only three passages of Scripture and people citing those three passages of Scripture. Uh, And and the other two passages, aside from here, are in the Old Testament. And so it's it's pretty likely that Peter wants us to understand our identity as sojourners and exiles in light of those Old Testament texts. And the first one of those is in Genesis, Genesis 23, verse 4, when Abraham is seeking to buy a plot of ground to bury Sarah, his wife, he says to the Hittites, 
I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place. And the point is, as Abraham is sojourned among the Hittites, so we sojourn in the present age. And we can even extend the analogy because Abraham sojourned in the promised land. And so we live in the land that will be renewed one day, a land over which Christ presently rules, but for the moment we don't belong. It's not so much that we're in the wrong place as with Abraham, we're in the wrong time. Years later, his descendants would reign in Canaan. But in the meantime, he was a pilgrim and a stranger. And some time from now, Scripture says Christ will return and we will reign on earth, but not yet. Abraham could work alongside the Canaanites in ways, but he could not fully join in with them, certainly not in their worship. And David, too, uh, talks about himself as a sojourner and a stranger because he knew that he didn't fit in uh, with the wicked around him. And the point is that the church, we do not fit in among the world. Uh, when we came to Christ and we're, we were separated from the world, we became a part of this new community, the church. And that means that, that we can no longer participate in all of the things that the world does. Oh, you can work alongside the citizens of this age in many things, but there are points where we must draw lines. And Peter tells us uh, later, he'll tell us later in, in his letter, that this is going to cause problems. And so uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 3 to 4, Peter says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, uh, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join, th join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. See, to be sojourners and exiles is not necessarily fun. It's actually to stick out. It's to realize I don't fit in here, and it's to have other people realize you don't fit in here because you don't join in. The Christian life Therefore, right, is not for the faint of heart. Uh, you have to be ready and willing to be treated like an outsider. Otherwise, there is the temptation to compromise in order to fit in and to go along. But what Peter is saying at this point is actually not that you need to be different, but that you are different. He's talking about their identity, right? Their objective status in the sight of God. You are sojourners and exiles. You don't fit here. God has taken you as his own. He said earlier in 1 Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Which means this world is not your home. You belong to God, not to this age. You are different. You don't belong here and now. One other place this word exile is used in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews. And the, the writer of Hebrews, again, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, specifically meaning the land, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
You see, we do not belong here and now because we belong then and there. Uh, God has prepared a city for us in heaven, the new Jerusalem. One day, uh, Revelation 21 tells us that that then and there will become here and now. Right? The new Jerusalem will come down from heaven and we will be home. But not yet. And here is the point. In light, of the, in light of the flow of what Peter is saying, if we are going to be different by doing good for God's sake, we have to get this down first. We need to know who we are in Christ, and we need, we, need to, I know, we need to know the identity we have in Christ as sojourners and exiles, beloved of the Father. You know, quite frankly, it's hard to stick out and be different when you're on your own. It's hard to go unloved and unwanted, right? The, the end of that road is either you conform because you just can't take it anymore, or you are destroyed and your soul is crushed under the weight of rejection. But Peter says we are loved as sojourners and exiles, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people treasured by the Father. It's not that we're unloved, it's that we are unloved by the world, but loved by our Father in heaven. And it's not that we're homeless, it's that this world is not our home. And it's that identity as people who are special to God that gives us strength to, re- to be rejected, to be willing to be rejected by the world, and so gives us the strength to do good, as Peter will say in a moment. And so, t- to begin with, right, do you know that you are loved by the Father? Do you know that you are special to him, a people for his treasured possession? Do you know his love for you? If not, meditate on the cross. God's love is supremely displayed there when he gave up his son for our sins. When Jesus died in our place, taking on the wrath of the Father that we might enjoy the Father's affection. And of course, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead, victorious over this age, and inaugurating the age to come, the age of the resurrection. Which means that now, by faith in Christ, we we no longer belong to this present age because we belong to the age to come in Christ. We belong to this future time, the resurrection. And so first, to, to do good, we need to know the identity we have in Christ as sojourners and exiles here. This world is not our home. And... We need to know where the battle is fought. So the source of our doing good is our identity in Christ. But second, the first steps of our doing good. Verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, what what does this mean, the passions of the flesh? What are the passions of the flesh? It's important to say a few things. Because often uh, it's easy to misunderstand this phrase. It's important to say first that our physical flesh, our bodies, are not bad. Uh, God made them good. And and second, uh, the desires of our physical flesh, our bodies, are not bad. Uh, The desires for food and clothing and shelter and sex and even love and respect are not bad. Peter will later say, Christ came and died in the flesh, and uh, we live the rest of our lives in the flesh. You see, the problem is not the flesh, per se, nor even its desires, per se. So what's the problem? Uh, The problem is when those desires take on a life of their own, 
The word for passions uh, here can sometimes be used for positive desire, but often it is used for what some have called over-desires. When a desire for a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. When a desire gets out of control, out of our control, and then in control of us. Paul says of some, their God is their belly, which is a very vivid way of saying their desires have taken over. Of course, the goal is not no desires, but rightly ordered desires. But Peter says here, the passions of our flesh are currently in revolt against our soul. Peter gives us clues about how to fight this battle. In chapter 1, verse 14, Peter calls these passions of our flesh the passions of our former ignorance. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he calls us to arm ourselves with a certain way of thinking so that we might live the rest of the time in our flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, there's a war for our hearts, according to 2.11, and we must arm ourselves for battle, according to chapter 4, verse 1. And that war, in part, is fought with with truth and lies. Uh, Jesus calls us to know the truth, and by truth there he means himself, and the truth will set us free. Uh, Paul calls us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, the war is fought at the level of the, the mind with the truth. I should point out in Scripture, right, mind and heart and soul are not as distinct as they are in our, our, our culture. Uh, we're transformed by the renewal of our inner person. As mind and heart and will and desires and affections and thoughts are increasingly conformed to the realities of God and the gospel. Well, what does that battle look like? Uh, Well, first and foremost, Peter says it looks like abstaining from the passions of the flesh. And that's because the the passions of our former ignorance, the the passions of this present age, um, are the passions of our present age. And we're no longer a part of this present age. Right? We're no longer a part of this age. And so he's saying, don't, don't, don't be like you once were. Don't be like those around you. Don't simply give yourselves over to the passions of your former ignorance, but be who you now are. Uh, but what does it look like still? What does it look like to fight those passions? Um, I mean, it looks like a number of things, right? It looks like rehearsing the gospel together as we do week after week in our uh, service. It looks like meditating on the truths of the gospel until they sink deep into our heart and mind. Uh, It looks like repentance of the inordinate and disordered desires of our hearts and faith in Christ who conquered sin for us. It looks like striving to obey and failing and turning to Jesus in the gospel for mercy and grace and help. Uh, Thursday night... I was angry, Uh, livid, actually, it's probably a better word. Uh, I was doing something on the computer, something that should have been really simple, you know, input X, get out Y, uh, except I kept inputting X and getting out Z, and uh, repeatedly, with no clear explanation of Y. And I've since talked with the help desk multiple times. They don't even seem to understand my problem. Uh, They keep giving me answers that bear no resemblance to my question. But I'm not angry anymore. I was Thursday night. And the question is, why? One answer, the answer of 1 Peter 2.11, is the passions of my flesh were waging war on my soul, and my soul in that moment was losing. 
Uh, to put it in terms of Romans 12, I was being conformed to the pattern of this world. Conformed because I was loving the things the world loves. I was loving this age. I was loving comfort and ease. I was loving my plans and my agenda, which were not sit at the computer for an hour and try to make something work. I was loving when things go my way. The glory of God did not have a hold of my heart, but the glories of the moment, the glories of this age. And they were threatened by a computer. What did I need to do in that moment? It wasn't that I needed to simply tell myself, stop being angry. Simple exhortations are good, but insufficient. I needed to work on my heart. I needed to lift my eyes off my situation in order to see the situation in light of God and the gospel. I needed to see things truly as they really were. I needed my own desires reoriented away from a working computer to the glories of my Father. And so if we are to be different by doing good for God's sake, we need to both know our identity in Christ, but we also need to know the war that we wage in Christ. We need to know where the battle is, a battle with the passions of our former ignorance, fought with the truths of God and the gospel. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's it's not simply a battle even of the will, just do it. It's a battle of passions. Whom do I love and why? It's a battle of the heart and mind. Do I know what is supremely glorious? Do I desire what is supremely glorious? Or am I settling for the glories of this age? Glories which in the end will always disappoint. And so doing good flows out of our identity in Christ and it begins with the battle we wage, the level of our hearts, the level of our souls. And so that's the, that's the source of our doing good, our identity in Christ. That's the first steps of our doing good, the battle that begins in the heart. Third, the context of our doing good. Peter is, is actually incredibly realistic. Though this world is not our home, this is where we live. We may be citizens of heaven, but we are sojourners on earth. Peter may be forward-looking, but he's not escapist. And so he says in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And notice here just two things. First, Peter assumes that his readers are active among the Gentiles. Now, by Gentiles here, he means non-Christian Gentiles. There was actually this habit of the apostles to talk about Christians as almost a separate race, neither Jew nor Greek, but Christian. And here's the point. Peter's not escapist. He doesn't think you don't belong to the world, therefore avoid the world. He doesn't think you don't belong, therefore run and hide. He doesn't think you don't belong, therefore build walls to keep the big bad world out. Rather, he knows their day-to-day life will be lived among the Gentiles. Peter doesn't envision an invisible Christian ghetto somewhere off to the side, but a visible Christian presence among the Gentiles. Second, notice that these Gentiles among whom they act are not always friendly. Peter says they speak against you as evildoers. 
remember, Peter is writing not just to one church, but multiple churches throughout Asia Minor. Uh, and so clearly this was a common part of church life in the first century. In fact, Peter has to say later, 1 Peter 3.9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Because clearly someone was treating them badly. But what was the particular suffering that they were undergoing? I mean, what is it that was being done to them? Well, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says they were spoken against as evildoers. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says they were slandered and their good behavior was reviled. In chapter 4, verse 4, Peter says because they would not join in the immorality, they were maligned. And they were insulted for the name of Christ, according to chapter 4, verse 14. And so I I want you to notice the the particular suffering that they were undergoing. They were spoken against, they were slandered, they were reviled, they were maligned, they were insulted. What's interesting is that the persecution that they were undergoing at this time was not primarily physical, nor political, but verbal and social. The people around them spoke badly about them. People didn't like them because they stuck out. They, they didn't like them because they, they wouldn't join in. Uh, they didn't like them, and so they called them names. And I want you to notice this because, really, this is the primary type of persecution most of us are likely to face today. And so Peter expects, then, two things of our context. One, we will be among non-Christians. And two, we will be despised and rejected like Jesus. Remember, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him, John says. That is, his own people, the the Jewish people, did not receive their own Messiah, Jesus. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was not only spoken against, but of course ultimately arrested, falsely charged, falsely condemned, and then put to death on the cross. And the question, of course, is why? Um, Why go through all that? What good did it do? Well, we've already given one answer to that question a bit earlier. Jesus died for our forgiveness, and Jesus rose that we might have newness of life. But there's a second answer to that question, and that brings us to our final point. Uh, We've looked at the source of our doing good, our identity in Christ, the first steps of our doing good, the battle that begins in the heart, the context of our doing good, that we live in a world that's hostile to people who do not go along with their agenda. And fourth, the goal of our doing good. Uh, Why do good? There are lots of reasons uh, that people give. Some say, well, it's good for you. Many people live with some sense of karma, a kind of tit-for-tat understanding of life. If I do good, good will be done to me. And, of course, there's some truth to that, certainly, But sometimes doing what is right actually means going against the grain, and we end up suffering for doing good. And when that is the case, the answer, that answer to the question, why do good, falls apart. And that's true with any variation of that answer, right? Why do good? Well, because it makes you look good, except when it doesn't. Uh, Why do good? Because it's it's a good way to stay out of trouble, except when it isn't. And so others answer the question, why do good? Well, because, you know, people might not like you for it and things might not go well with you, but but God will love you for it, except that he won't. Uh, Meaning, Scripture tells us that all of our deeds are tainted with sin, sinful motives, biased understandings, and so on. God's love is not found because we earn it through our good deeds, but God's love is found in the cross. Uh, 
It's actually a, a free gift, not a payment for doing good. It's true for God's beloved children. The Father does delight in our good deeds. That's absolutely true. But not because they're perfect, because they aren't, but because they're for Him. Right? Verse 13 uses that language. Be subject for the Lord's sake. And so what should be then the goal of our doing good? Well, verse 12, again, says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And verse 15 picks up on this, uh, where Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that. Here's the reason. Here's the purpose, the goal. So that those who speak ill of the church might see your good deeds. Not because you want to show off. uh, Not because you want people to see you and think how great you are. But because you want people to see God at work in you and think how great God is. That they might see your good deeds and glorify God. Your life of good deeds brings glory to your Father. And Peter's just picking up on the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Or 1 Corinthians 10.31, a little bit out of context but still applicable. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, people are looking, and we live among non-Christians. They will see, as both Jesus and Peter point out. And the hope is, or, or better, the promise is, of both Jesus and Peter, is that they will see our good works and glorify our Father. As I pointed out last week, of course, that doesn't mean being perfect, because we can't be, we won't be. In fact, even our repentance brings glory to our Father. And one of the things all this means is that the call to be different is not for the sake of being different. Right? We are to be different from the world, but not just to be different. Sometimes Christians look different from the world in ways that are essentially irrelevant. Uh, so the early church... Uh, Early on, Christians started fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays because others fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. That's a meaningless difference, really. Sometimes Christians insist on different clothing or food or music, not on moral grounds or even strict biblical grounds, but just because it will draw a difference. But again, that's not the kind of difference that will ultimately bring glory to our Father. Our difference should be that of doing good. Uh, doing good as God, def- and as God defines doing good, so that God will be glorified. We don't want to just be weird, right? we want to be holy. Peter says our good deeds will glorify God on the day of visitation, meaning at Christ's return, when, when he comes and visits his people and makes all things new. And what that means is we, we may not see the fruit of our doing good now. Uh, People might not treat us better, right? People might not come to Christ. People may continue to speak ill of us uh, in the present and not acknowledge the good that we do until the last day. Then they will be compelled by God to see, know, and acknowledge the good. See, we want God to be glorified, but for part of that, we, we wait. 
And yet, as Paul, Paul tells us, at the return of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Part of that means every knee, every knee will bow and every tongue will glorify God because of the good deeds of his people. Which means your actions in the present actually have consequences for eternity. And this is why Paul, in light of the coming resurrection, says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, if you know 1 Corinthians 15, it's a whole chapter about the resurrection and the resurrection to come and our resurrection bodies and what they will be like. And the chapter ends in what almost seems like a, a non sequitur, right? It's like this weird point, like where did that come from? But it's not. It's actually integrally related to Paul's argument there in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, therefore, meaning in light of the resurrection, Therefore, in light of the resurrection to come, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Not in vain because of the resurrection. Now, if you're curious, okay, what, what, what does doing good look like? We've talked about doing good. I've used that phrase again and again, but what does that mean? Uh, well, stay tuned. You have to come back next week. When Peter begins to unpack this for us, right? So over the next chapter, he unpacks what doing good looks like. For now, know that your labor is not in vain. Your doing good is not in vain. Uh, we work and we serve in light of who we are in the gospel, doing battle for our hearts in the midst of a hostile world for the glory of our Father, and he will be glorified through us. Of that we can be certain. He has promised, and so he will surely do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that, uh, the, that you have given us the promise that you will be glorified through us. Because we know that if that depended on us, uh, we would be hopeless. But it doesn't depend on us. It depends on you and you being faithful to your promises. And we thank you that we can then trust you and serve you knowing that you will be glorified in that. Help us by your spirit to fight the fight that needs to be fought, uh, that we might do good in the world in a way that brings you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.